Welcome to part two of episode 43 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com, and special guest Michael Gray. So, um, okay, so 1990 was the year that Dances with Wolves won Best Picture. It was it made a shitload of money, um, over $100 million. It, it It also entered the race like Titanic did, where people were calling it Kevin's Gate, um, you know, a pun on Heaven's Gate, thinking that it was a oh, huge right. bomb. Yeah. yeah, that he was in over his head. And somehow those kind of stories almost always materialize to a Best Picture winner in, in the old mm-hmm. Hollywood model. Because, in a way, because I think there becomes, uh, you almost, uh, it goes from mocking the person to rooting for him because he's an underdog, right? You, you think that he's going to fail, and then a lot of, pe- a lot of people begin to wish that, that hope that he doesn't fail because it would be against all odds. All the studios, six different studios have turned him down, right? He'd almost given up on it until he found a, a British um, distributor to, to, to back him with half of the money to, to, to make it. Right. And so that you're coming from a position of, a lot of disadvantages, a lot of handicaps, and so people like to see you overcome those handicaps. But he won. But the studio that did back it finally did under two conditions: one that he have a love scene with a white woman, and two that he have a nude scene. And the movie well, definitely oh, features I did, both. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's according to yeah. Inside Oscar. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. So, and it is strange. I mean, I really respect the fact that he did hire a lot of Native Americans to um, to. Uh, in prominent roles and supporting roles, but it is kind of strange that the, his, his love interest was not a Native American, that he found a, a white actress to play an Indian girl. Yeah, because right? Josh and I, when we were watching the movie, I was just saying that. I think it would probably have been more interesting if his love interest was Indian. Wouldn't it have been? That would have been so much better. Yeah, so much better. But I guess they had to have a white woman in there, you know. That's what they said, but I can't. I can't remember if the book actually Michael Blake's book um, had written in it a white woman or not. Like I know that that an inside Oscar it says that that's one of the requirements, but I'm not sure if if it had been written into the book. As I recall, because I we kind of knew <clears throat> we kind of knew the people like we knew Michael Blake back in the '80s because one of our friends was dating him at the time. Oh wow! Cool. Yeah, and I actually I actually went to the. The premiere of that movie with um, <clears throat> just so happened that you know the band X Xine Cervenka was there John Doe oh, and yeah. Viggo Mortensen who was married to Xine and supposedly the character of Mary McDonough stands with fists was based on Xine because Michael Blake and her had been and Michael Blake and Xine had been such good friends and he might have been in love with her or something so the the details are a little bit sketchy to me. Like, was she really a white woman that he had conceived, or did the studios really say that, and that's how it ended up? But at any rate, that's how the movie is. It's it, it looks so ridiculous now because of their hair. Their hair is so nineties. Mary McDonald's <laughs> and Kevin Costner's. It's like soft feathered and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so they of course have an affair. Fair Fawcett hairstyles. <laughs> and we were laughing because before they have sex, like she has to go wash that thing. <laughs> to go in the river and, and wash that thing. And then they get to have sex. She you has know, to get pure. Well, you know, I think she had to go into the water because she was married before, so she had to be pure. And to wash that thing. Off. Let's wash forget. That funky prairie mouth. <laughs> so, so then, of course, they have sex. The, the, the love scene, I hate to be such a girl, but the love scene of Dances with Wolves and the, and the scenes with the wolf, to me, are the best. Like, the rest of it is so boring. It's like watching paint dry. But 
the stuff with the little wolf is great, you know, and the love scene is really passionate. And those two things I liked about it. What made this movie boring for me, and it's Kevin Costner's narration. He is so boring. It was like he's reading a script. There was no emotion in his um, narrating. I mean, they should have gotten someone else to narrate the film instead of having him do it. It reminded me of um, Leonardo DiCaprio in the um, JF, J. Edgar Hooper film. Like His narration was so bad. And whenever... Kevin Costner started talking as a narrator, the film just went downhill for me. It was like so boring. It's like, shut up. You know, just tell the story. That's how Compare I that to the almost constant voiceover in Goodfellas, which is all incredible. Right. It is incredible because it's so vibrant. And it does it have a, a, a result, I think, in a, a, of the type of acting that you're, that, you're able to get, that you're able to get or not able to get out of Kevin Costner, who, for all his, his uh, great traits, he's a little bit wooden. You know, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> that that works in certain situations, but not in yeah, I mean, work he, for him. he sleeps. The thing is, he was Kevin Costner was so popular back then. Even with his wooden acting, people just went over that and they just loved him. You know, and he was the golden boy of Hollywood at that time. But when he when he sleepwalks through this movie, he is so bad. When you watch it now, back then, I guess people just. They ignored it, but when you look at his this, his performance in this film, it's really it's a bad performance. It's not that great, and it's like he's sleepwalking through the film. Not only was he pretty good looking, but he had he had done it. He had a pretty good run from right. from uh, No Way Out, to Field of Dreams, to um, Bull Durham. You know, he's he's a good looking guy, and so gotcha. and he chose roles. He chose roles like JFK and and uh, where he could get away with being wooden. You know, and so it, he, and the Untouchables. You know, he chose roles like that where wouldn't kind of worked for him. One little thing, a side thing, I found out about Kevin Costner that I had never known before. Did you know that he was in, he was the corpse in The Big Chill? Big yeah. Chill, yeah. I didn't had it before. For the most part, yeah. They yeah. they even had filmed some flashback scenes with him, showing like what when when they had known him when he was alive, but they cut all that stuff out. But he was the corpse, the the, the funeral that they all went to at the Big Chill, yeah. and so um, you know, seven years later, he finally got to to. Yeah, you know, I live. I, I definitely was a young in my twenties during the Kevin Costner era. I remember it very well. He was king of Hollywood at that time, and that's why the irony of him. Beating Scorsese um, is so profound because <clears throat> the same thing kind of happened with Robert Redford, and then Ben Affleck didn't beat Scorsese. But this idea of a you know an actor making good, an actor that everybody knows, because what they bring with them in the Oscar race is you know um, generally recognized acceptance by people, not just the industry, you know, but but audiences. Everybody was rooting for Ben Affleck because everybody knows Ben Affleck because he's a friendly actor. Mm-hmm. And same with Kevin Costner and same with Robert Redford. So their narrative to becoming a director was a lot more meaningful to the American people and to the industry than, than just, you know, an already talented director making a great movie. The actors have what, what actors have that other people don't, other human beings don't have is that charm, that charisma right. that comes across so well. And, that, and people feel like that they know them. Um, because they've seen them in so many other movies before, and they identify with them as a friend almost. And people don't have that same association with very many directors, hardly any directors. No, people, I but. mean, you know, pity the poor director who thinks it's really about the work, because you know it's not. Mm. Winning Oscars right. is never about the work. Um, it's about likability. 
Kevin Costner's movies leading up to Dances with Wolves had earned $400 million altogether. His previous four or five movies had earned a total of $400 million, which is a pretty big deal back then. So he was like, he was like almost like Tom Cruise levels. Yeah, and let me read you this part of Inside Oscar after Dances with Wolves beat Goodfellas. Um, it was a big deal even then. It says, a week after the ceremony... Daily Variety's top story was that Martin Scorsese had entered into a rare, exclusive six-year motion picture producing and directing deal with Universal Pictures, whose chairman, Tom Pollock, raved that the director is, quote, a unique animal who doesn't want to play Hollywood games and go to lunch everywhere. He wants to make movies. This turn of fortune was not good enough for Goodfellas supporters, still angry over Scorsese's going home empty-handed on Oscar night. Janet Maslin denigrated the Academy as an organization capable of deeming Kevin Costner a better director than Martin Scorsese, the evening's um, single biggest outrage. Gene Seymour of Newsday demanded to know, what's it going to take? What wheels does Martin Scorsese have to to, to grease? Who does he have to buy off or knock off? Premier characterized Scorsese as being angry and disappointed over his loss, and he told the magazine, I wish I could be like some of the other guys and say, no, no, I don't care about it. But for me, a kid growing up on the Lower East Side, watching from, watching from the first telecast of the Oscars, there's a certain magic out there. Two Scorsese veterans expressed their opinions. Harvey Keitel reasoned that maybe he got what he deserved, exclusion from the mediocre. Taxi driver's mm. Jody Foster said, when you look at the ten old ladies who put down Dances with Wolves instead of Goodfellas, I don't know, the Oscars are like bingo, who cares? And as wow. for, that, as for that. The, that rare deal with Universal, the studio decided not to make the director's next project, deeming the $30 million budget for an adaptation of Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence too dear a price for the prestige of having that unique animal in its employ. Mm. So it would take years for Scorsese to kiss enough asses to win um, Best you know, Picture it's, it's, it's strange, isn't it, that this is, it happened, this is like a deja vu of what happened in 1980. At the very beginning of the decade, Martin Scorsese blows everyone away with a movie that, that will not be surpassed throughout the next, the following eight years with Raging Bull. He, he makes a movie like Raging Bull and he says, okay, you top that, and nobody is able to. And then in 1990, ten years later, he, he makes another movie and it's like, top that, and nobody can. Right. You know, so and it's just ironic that it happened exactly ten years apart, and those are two of his greatest films. And, 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 it, and that he lost to the kinds of directors and films. That yeah, he lost but you and know, almost a parallel situation in both situations. The thing well, about the thing well, is, is that I think Maslin has it has it wrong with her anger, and Jodie Foster has it right. That the Oscars, as we've seen time and time and time again, is is more often than not not about the best movie or the best director. It's about the movie that the people who are voting like the best for whatever reason. And, and Dances with Wolves is one of those one of those movies that that it touches on a traumatic incidents in American history. And turns it around to make you feel good about it, and that's why it's so incredibly popular. Mm. That people people feel like they're absolving their white guilt over the genocide that we pulled off against the Native Americans by watching it, because mm, because you could, he's 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 the white hero that saves the day, and all the other white characters in the film are reprehensible and terrible. It's it's, it's very similar to me to what they did with the Help, and why I didn't like the Help that much was because of the same. The same thing. It, it's a movie that white people can watch and feel good about a bad situation. Just here that you've been decorated. Yes, sir. And they sent you here to be posted? Actually, sir, I'm here at my own request. Really? Why? 
I've always wanted to see the frontier. You want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone. Such a smart lad coming straight to me. Sir. Knight. I am sending you on a knight's errand. You will report to Captain Cargill at the furthermost outpost of the realm, Fort Sedgwick. My personal seal will assure your safety through many miles of wild and hostile country. I was wondering... Yes? I was wondering, sir, how will I be getting there? You think I don't know? No, sir. You think I don't know? No, sir, it's just that I don't... Hold your tongue. I happen to be in a generous mood and I will grant you a boon. See that peasant out there? He calls himself Timmins. He's going to your Fort Sedgwick this very afternoon. You can ride with him if you like. He knows the way. Thank you, that is all. Sir Knight? I just pissed in my pants. And nobody can do anything about it. Mm, right. I see. Well, <clears throat> a lot of my early um, experiences on Oscar Watch were about Martin Scorsese. Like, he was my obsession. Part of the reason I even started my website at all was because of Martin Scorsese never winning an Oscar. And I, I remember living through... Um, the Aviator, when um, Harvey Weinstein wanted to, I think it was The Aviator. No, it was Gangs um, of New York. Uh, Gangs, Gangs of New, New York, York, probably, yeah. When Harvey Weinstein had Robert Wise, the famous director, put out a like a, an FYC ad saying why he was voting for Scorsese. And it was this big scandal. And Gangs of New York ended up going 10 for, for zero at the Oscars. Um, nobody really liked that movie. Even Daniel Day-Lewis didn't win, and he was one of the favorites to win. But... Scorsese's Oscar history was very long and brutal. And I think if you hadn't lived through that, you never would have known that The Departed was going to win. If you lived through it, you knew that all he had to do was slam dunk one movie and it, the Oscar was his. And, he and did go it. back to the type of movie that people loved him for in the 80s instead of trying to, instead of, not that he was trying necessarily to make, to, to stretch and go in other directions, but he just, he did because that's what he was interested in doing, things like The Aviator and Gangs of New York, things that weren't necessarily gangster movies. But to go back to his gangster roots, that, that also helped him. You know. And it was a moneymaker and it was really entertaining and mm-hmm. it was the best movie of the five. So all of those things together was like the ultimate slam dunk for him. Right. Then there was no way they were going to die him. You know, what else well, he, was going to Well, he cast that cast in that film, too. It was the cast, too. Great that cast. Everybody liked. Great mm-hmm. script. Great cast. And the script was phenomenal. So, I mean, he couldn't lose that year. That's why I thought it was funny that so many people thought, oh, no, the Academy won't go for that movie. It's too dark. And I thought, oh, no, you know, think about Martin Scorsese's history and tell me that again, mm-hmm. you know. Because it was it, dark, but it was dark with the, that Scorsese humor that he, put, he throws into it. So I, I never think of his films as being oppressively... 
hard to watch because they're so they're so fun. But by know? the time The Departed came along, everybody wanted Martin Scorsese to win an Oscar. Yeah. Everybody, everybody in the Academy, everybody, you know, just everybody was involved in that. So it wasn't going to take much. Right. And he hit it with that that film, and now he should have hit it with Hugo <laughs> again. And I can't wait for Wolf of Wall Street. And I love that he keeps making movies, and I'm happy for him that he has only won one Oscar. Martin Scorsese won Oscar in all of the years he's been working in film. One. Mm-hmm. Well, couldn't it be that um, before, like back in the '70s, he was strictly a New York-based filmmaker? And, you know, there is this rivalry between New York-based filmmakers and um, West Coast filmmakers. Well, especially you know? in and, the 70s, yeah. Yeah, in mm-hmm. the 70s. So they they knew, you know, he was a great director in the 70s. But for some reason, I, I truly believe it was because he was so anti-West Coast at the time that they just wouldn't give him an Oscar. You know, Woody Allen was, too, very very East Coast. But Woody Allen was smart enough to do the thing where he, t- he knows how to tickle the, the West Coast fancy with things like Annie Hall, where you go back and forth between your settings, between New York and L.A. You know, mm-hmm. he would play off of L.A. and joke about L.A. in a way that L.A. people could appreciate. And But uh, Scorsese never did that. But I'm- yeah, um, no, I said he had to appease the masses compared to Scorsese, who didn't. Mm-hmm. Scorsese right. did it on his terms. Right. Mm-hmm. And I watched Goodfellas the other day, and, and Raging Bull honestly had a better shot at winning Best Picture than Goodfellas. It is not an Oscar movie. It's totally brutal. I mean, if you think about those scenes with Lorraine Bracco and, um, you know, Ray Liotta, and they're she's sitting on him with a gun in his face. I mean, that's mm-hmm. No, it's not typical. There's nothing typical Oscar movie about no. that at all. And it, I'm, you know, in a way, you're, you're even almost surprised that it was even nominated because it's so rough and it's so hardcore. It's not their usual typical fare. This is Karen Hill. I want to talk to you. Hello? Hello? Don't hang up on me. I want to talk to you. You keep away from my husband. You hear me? Open the door! Answer me! I'm going to tell everyone who walks in this building that in 2R Rossi, you are nothing but a whore! Is this the superintendent? Yes, I want you to know, sir, that you have a whore living in 2R! Rossi! Janice Rossi, do you hear me? He's my husband! Get your own goddamn man! I couldn't hurt him. How could I hurt him? I couldn't even bring myself to leave him. The truth was that no matter how bad I felt, I was still very attracted to him. Why should I give him to someone else? Why should she win? Karen. 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 
Kermit. What, you fucking crazy, Kermit? Are you crazy? Huh? I got enough to worry about getting fucking whacked on the street. I gotta fucking come home. I gotta fucking come home! Phyllis! I should fucking kill you! How does it feel? Huh? Huh? How does it feel, Karen? Yeah, no, it is uh, a great movie. It's a great yeah. movie, but I mean, you compare that with Dances with Wolves, where he's got this little wolf that he kneels down and he hands out his beef jerky, and the little wolf crawls up to him and takes it. And then the, I guess they shoot the wolf. I mean, it's horrible. But, and then the, the I mean, it's just, that is an Oscar movie. I, I hate to be mm. the one to say those words, but that is an Oscar movie. Dances with Wolves, as boring as it is, that's the one that's going to appeal to the lowest common denominator. Well, it's epic, you know. I mean, the, the movie had a lot going for it. I mean, it had the, the cinematography alone was beautiful. That's the that's one of the most beautiful things about the film was cinematography. It just yeah. took you away to another time, and I think they just couldn't deny that film, like the yeah. Oscar at all. I do all. think was, you're right about that. I think it was just really great. It was a really a pleasure to look at. But I mean, anybody could take a Polaroid camera, go out to those that, to that landscape, and, and get a good, good shots. You know, it's not as if the cinematography was so extraordinary. It's just the landscape is so extraordinary. Yeah. Right. But it did I win. Think. It won seven Oscars. And mm. and the other movies it was nominated against, this is also the year that Godfather, Coppola, and Godfather 3 came back. And Ghost and Awakenings were the other two nominees. And some of the movies that didn't get nominated that were in the Oscar race that should have, Reversal of Fortune, which was great, and especially The Grifters, which is one yeah. of my favorite movies. It's like a great f- movie. Great yeah. movie. Postcards from the Edge is great. Misery is great. Um, these were all better choices. And even Wild at Heart. David Lynch is Wild at Heart back when he still made movies. Um Dick Tracy was a freaking better movie than Dances with Wolves. <laughs> Dick mm-hmm. Tracy, I, I, yeah. it, was, it was a mess, but it was more interesting. <laughs> and you know what else? Miller's Crossing. Did you say Miller's yeah. Crossing? I thought that no. was last year, though, wasn't it? Nope. No, I don't think so. Oh, that's this year? Oh, well, that's... Miller's a... Crossing, go, and I, did he not even get nominated for anything? Well, that's a scandal. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's my, It's probably in my top three favorite uh, uh, Corn Brothers films of all time. It was not well appreciated at the time. They didn't really start to get critical mass until... It started a little bit with Barton Fink the next year when they won um, the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Um, mm-hmm. But up to that point, they were still kind of unknowns, and so it doesn't surprise me too much. And, and I don't know that it really did that well at the box office. And I remember a lot of critics at the time were not very kind to it because of the violence and because people just hadn't clicked into that weird Cohen vibe yet. They hadn't. Right. They weren't, the, the they whole weren't thing cool. about their, their diet. Go ahead, Michael. I'm sorry. No, I'm saying it, it now it, has, it is considered to be one of the, the best one of the greatest um, um, gangster films. films ever made. Oh, yeah. Gangster mm-hmm. films, yeah. I mean, it's right up there with Goodfellas and The Godfather film. It's a great It is for me, film. for sure. Yeah, definitely. You yeah. know what? We talk about sometimes about how the National Board of Review sees things. As much criticism they give the National Board of Review, they did nominate it. Uh, they did name Miller's Crossing one of the top ten films of, of 1990. So they get credit for being like the only people who saw it, who only, uh-huh. who only saw, who saw its value. Well, sometimes the Academy, I, sometimes they really don't appreciate really good filmmaking sometimes. You know, they go, they <laughs> yeah. go with what's easy. 
you know. Which, yeah. I mean, Death is with Wolves was an easy, simple film, really. I mean, yes, it was yeah. epic, but it was an easy, um, crowd pleasing film. You know, it mm -hmm. gangster films where there's violence and there's rape and murder and things like that. Hollywood has to sometimes they cut, they take a second, they take a back seat to stuff like that. It's like it's too too much for them to take. You know, it's like it's. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's too real for them sometimes. Like, we can't have that. You know, films are simple. Well, I, um, I almost get the feeling there was an anti-violence backlash in 1990 because of when you look at the films that were overlooked for nomination altogether and the paltry nominations and wins that the violent films did get, it's almost as if they were withdrawing from that for some reason. I don't know what, what it was well, it about was the, the end of the year. Well, Gulf, for one thing, there was, was the, the Gulf, Gulf War. War. Yeah, the Gulf War and George Bush. I think that had a lot yeah. to do with it. And, yeah. you know, people were starting to get heavy into therapy and... Mm -hmm. the, and into and into ecology, you know, into the into the green lifestyle and into ecology and Dances with Wolves would was right in really dovetailed nicely with all that, you know, respect for because there's that line in in uh, right, Dances right, with right. Wolves where Kevin Costner says, uh, "I want to see the frontier before it's gone." You I know, know. I, you so know. many of these Oscar movies are just about this one generation. They're about the greatest generation. They're about the uh, or the generation right after the boomers, you know, mm -hmm. and their life's trajectory. And that movie fits right in with that it is the definitive yeah. boomer movie um here's some other films that were released that year that i don't think got much attention which was um, Catherine bigelow's blue steel with jamie lee curtis which is a guilty pleasure of mine uh mm -hmm. akira okay. kurosawa's dreams which has martin scorsese playing uh vincent van gogh and la femme nikita which kind of started a whole movement but the original french version is 10 times better tie me up tie me down um, Pedro Almodovar, really great, mm -hmm. early Pedro Almodovar. Truly, Madly, Deeply, which um, is one of the greatest love stories ever made. White Palace uh, with Susan Sarandon as an older woman seducing James Spader. I already said Wild at Heart. And then mm -hmm. the funny Wild Orchid, which was a total failure, but worth noting because you had these kind of post... Um, Two things were happening with women in film at this time. Julia Roberts was becoming a huge star because Pretty Woman came out this year, and so did Flatliners, and she was now a $100 million baby. This was the big Julia because Roberts. Because Pretty Woman, nobody expected it to be a big hit at all, and it just took off like a rocket, didn't it? it didn't, didn't it almost make like $200 million or something? Yeah, it made like $180 million. I have it's to read you something it? about it. was actually yeah. beat by... Um, uh, Pretty Woman was beat by another movie. Oh, God, what was it? It did. Ghost. Which, Ghost. 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 Yeah. yeah. Another incredibly successful movie that was unexpected that a movie like that could take off into the stratosphere and earn over $200 million. I think at the time, Ghost was only the eighth or ninth movie that had ever crossed $200 million. Well, let me read you something about Pretty Woman, which is really funny. Writer J.F. Lawton's script, 3000, was a bleak tale of a wealthy man who hires a drug-addicted prostitute for a week and then tosses her back on the streets of Hollywood. The author described the theme as the idea that men would rather buy women than respect them. That all changed when the people at Disney got their hands on the screenplay. Originally, the studio merely wanted an upbeat ending with a reformed heroine, with with a reformed heroine 
opening up a daycare center, <laughs> but then <laughs> following the dictates of the self-declared romantic and sentimentalist director Gary Marshall, a slew of writers refashioned the story into a variation of Cinderella. The streetwalker now has a proverbial heart of gold, is shown the finer things in life, and ends up with a filthy rich husband. <laughs> Arthur, mm-hmm. uh, author Lawton shrugged about the enterprise. When you sell a script, it's theirs. You've got to accept what happened to it. Julia Roberts read 3000 and loved it, this, this dark and dingy story. When she later saw it sweetened into romantic comedy, now called Pretty Woman, she admitted it was a real mind twist. Hmm. So there you go. There's more, that, but that I That's won't read. That's so strange, that. isn't <laughs> it? I mean, it's, it's really, I, I really like Pretty Woman a lot, and I, I have a fondness for it. I mean, beyond its real value, but, uh, but it's absurd that it started out that way, and, and know, they, they twisted it? it around into Cinderella. That is the player. That is exactly the yeah, player. Uh-huh. It know? is, really, isn't it? Seriously. <laughs> Yeah, but um, but it is interesting to me too that they would do that, and it really does show sort of the direction this year with Julia Roberts. I mean, this really is when things change for women, as you can see by some of these movies, Wild Orchid, and you know the way that women are being marginalized and kind of losing their clout at the box office in serious roles, and they're going to younger actresses. So, I have a there's a go ahead. I'm sorry, I was looking for something. I was trying to find. Something that Meryl Streep said about um, about Pretty Woman. She she was really she you know one thing at Pretty Woman for Julia Roberts uh, it, it uh, her salary shot from fifty for five hundred thousand dollars per film to five million dollars per film right. just overnight and she was suddenly earning more than Meryl Streep and Meryl Streep said isn't it absurd I'm just doing this from memory Meryl Streep said isn't it absurd that that 25 percent of the roles in Hollywood are for women and 75 percent are for men if a Martian came down to earth and watched American movies for a few days they would they would come to the conclusion that, that all, all all women on earth are are hookers <laughs> because that's the only time you see a woman with a substantial role in a movie is when they're a hooker, you know. And so she was really frustrated by that, frustrated by the fact that, that Julie Roberts, you know, suddenly was earning $5 million a movie on the basis of playing a prostitute. Right, but well, she it, also got people in for all these other hideous yeah. movies like um, Sleeping with the Enemy and Flatline. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's also this, this fantasy, this whole thing. Hollywood loves prostitutes. You can go back so far. <laughs> so many women have been nominated and won Oscars playing prostitutes. It's like amazing. I know that, they do. What is it about the What is it about the prostitute that fascinates Hollywood? You know, it's. it's, it's hmm, I wonder. <laughs> it's, the, it's the Oscars that fascinates them. They well, love to see actresses get tarted up. They like to look at women that, that are that are that they can feel sorry for and and that they they want to fuck. You know. I mean, Julia Roberts, to, to me, was not a prostitute. She just didn't have, she wasn't a prostitute to me. It just didn't come off to me. She was she was just a girl who needed money. She went out because her friend, um, I guess, hooked her up to be a prostitute, but she never really had a job. She never did anything with anybody, you know? Uh, and so the whole well, thing They sanitized about, it. You're right. They had to sanitize it because, for yeah, one thing, it's, it's Disney. You know, because I do remember the original story was more darker. I do remember that, the original story. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say, it's one of my pleasures because I'm not a big Julia Roberts fan, but I actually do like the movie. It, it is That's a- what I mean. Yeah, it's a guilty pleasure of mine, too. Yeah, it's a guilty pleasure. I would never say it's like a great film. I didn't think she should have been nominated, but 
I think Richard Gere is fantastic, and for one thing, and he people he was sort of his career had sort of altered, and it was like he was a he was almost like um, box office poison by that by that time. He had made a, a several duds in a row, and so people were worried if he if he was if um, he was going to stink the whole movie just by him being in it. So I'm glad to see him, you know, sort of uh, his his career resurrected by Pretty Woman. Yeah, too. definitely it did, big time. So. Um uh, Dances with Wolves won Best Picture. Jeremy Irons won deservedly for um, Reversal of Fortune. He didn't really have any competition. Kathy Can I Banks, say one thing about that, though? I'm sorry to interrupt, I'm, and I want to be the last time I do this, but I want to say, say something about Cyrano de Bergerac and Gerard Depardieu, who was also nominated for Best Actor. Coming in several months ahead of the Oscars, it was almost uh, guaranteed. People were thinking that, that uh, Gerald, Gerald Depardieu was going to win Best Actor for, for Cyrano de Bergerac. It was a really good film, for one thing. It, w- it was the front runner for Best Foreign Language Film to win. And everyone was saying that, that it was a pretty weak year for actors and that he was going to walk away with it. But about a, right in the middle of, of uh, Oscar voting process, when ballots were in everybody's hand, he did an interview in France that was translated for Time Magazine, where he said, something where he seemed to confess that he was involved in a bunch of gang rapes when he was nine years old. Oh, right. And that right. was published in Time magazine. And once that happened, he was his, his chances were done. He was over with. He, it was, he was shot. And it, it also killed the, the chances for the movie to win Best Foreign Language Film. But it turns out that it was probably a, a mix-up in translation. Yeah. Because what he probably said was volet, which is to steal, instead of violet, which is to rape. You know, the word VLA, we like to violate. And even VLA really only means, like, to violate. It means, uh, can be, like, really rough sex. But it was translated as rape. And so he was saying when he was nine years old that he was a witness to some rough sex. And that's really all he said. But it was translated in Time Magazine that he was he was participated in a bunch of gang rapes. And so that yeah. just killed his chances. Yeah, that's a bummer. And so anyway, Kathy Bates won. Say what? I just wanted to do an abrupt subject change as a joke, but no. Yeah, that's a bummer. So anyway, you know. He did win the the French equivalent of the Academy Award, I think. Yeah, because they can speak French, and they understood that he wasn't saying that he was involved in gang rapes when he was nine years old, unlike ignorant Americans who thought that this nine-year-old was going around raping people. You know, <laughs> it's so strange that something like that would happen to the poor guy. Oh. But I'm really happy. On the other hand, I'm really am happy for uh, Jeremy Irons because uh, what a great role, what I a know. great movie, and what a great movie. That is one of my absolute favorites. I'm so, f- uh, you know, amazed that Glenn Close didn't get nominated for Sonny Von Bulow. It's one of her best roles, and she's know, so fantastic. I, I just can't understand what she. What she has to do to win an Oscar or to even be nominated. Yeah, and you have to endure all those scenes with Alan Dershowitz and his legal team, which are like... Mm-hmm. Some That's of them okay, are, though. Yeah, they're I, okay. I like, they're okay. I like all of that. I really well, love... Maybe, maybe with, with Glenn Close, remember she came out around the same time that Meryl Streep did, and they were at that one time in competition because they were both mm-hmm. great in everything that they did. So I guess when they decided on Best Actress... They probably went with Meryl Streep other than Glenn Close because I guess they didn't want the two great actresses competing, I guess. Well, go back and watch have, yeah. Go back and watch Reversal of Fortune and look at her performance. It's- no, she is great in that movie, but I'm mm-hmm. just saying that maybe because of Meryl Streep had more power in her performance, they decided, you know, we'll give it to her and not put Glenn Close. Well, because- Julia Roberts got nominated for Pretty Woman. And, I know. Uh, and um, Joanne Woodward for Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Okay, fine. Joanne Woodward, so she's going to get nominated. Meryl Streep is great in Postcards from the Edge. Julia Roberts is, you know, she's 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 Jennifer Lawrence in Pretty Woman. 
Mm-hmm. And exactly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's what she was. Uh, yeah, but as far as Joanne Woodward goes, I believe that the studio, the distributor, um, that was the, it was really the beginning of screeners, VHS screeners they were sending out. The previous year, um, Dead Poet Society had sent out screeners on VHS, and they, uh, they had a crawl at the bottom of the, of the screen that, were, that said how much money the movie had made and how many Golden Globe nominations it had won crawling across the bottom of the screen. And then the movie would break, and it would, it would give everybody a really stern warning about piracy. So they blew it with the screeners the previous year in 1989. But they figured out how to send out screeners in 1990. And the studio that was distributing Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, starring Joanne Woodward, only sent it to the actor's branch because they knew that they couldn't afford to send it to everybody, but they knew that it's one shot was best actress, and so they sent it to the actor's branch, and she was ultimately nominated. So it was really smart. But it was really the beginning of the age of the screeners, 1990. Wow. That's amazing. Um, Angelica Houston is incredible in The Grifters, along with Annette Bening and John Cusack. It's just an acting tour de force across the board from all three of them. And um, Angelica Houston plays a... um, uh, you know, a grift. She's on the grift, and she's John Cusack's mother in kind of weird competition with Annette Benning, John Cusack's girlfriend. And um, uh, Angelica Houston and John Cusack have the most warped scene where, you know, <laughs> she's trying to save herself, and he, you know, doesn't want to give her the money. And she has to actually seduce her own son to get this money, and, and of course, you know, just to survive because that's what she does. She's a survivor. That is a great scene to watch. It is chilling and brilliantly executed. Roy, what if I told you that I wasn't really your mother? That we weren't related? What? You'd like that, wouldn't you? Sure you would. You don't have to tell me. Now, why would you like that, what are you talking about? Of course you're my mother. Of course you are. There's nothing more to talk about. I want that money, Roy. I need it. What do I have to do to get it? I mean you won't give it to me, Roy? But let's look quickly look at um, the movie was so brilliantly executed that that uh, Stephen Frears was nominated for best director. Oh, he was. Yeah. yeah, he was. I think right. Let me check that real quick. But he didn't yeah, get summer. best picture. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was. Yes, Stephen he was. Frears, 
Uh, and also Babette, um, Barbette Schroeder was, um, Barbette ah, Schroeder was nominated so... for Reversal of Fortune. So, all right. So once again, you're saying the directors, just like last year, the directors had it closer to being right. They had Reversal of Fortune yeah. and the Grifters. Mm-hmm. They have yeah. five pretty good choices, you know. I mean, we can talk about Godfather Three too, but the, before we get to that, I just want to briefly say, look at the packed supporting actress category that year. It was. Uh, Mary McDonald dances with wolves. Diane Ladd, Wild at Heart, she's fantastic. Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas. Annette Bening in The Grifters, and the winner Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. I mean, I, I can't remember a time when I've seen such a great lineup of supporting actresses. So great for Goldberg to win. The only, the only, the only, the, the second woman in Oscar history to win, and the fifth black person in in all of Oscar history to have won. I think that, you know, and so and. Amazing that she pulled that off, and and really the movie it revolves around her. Yeah, and she she does she steals it completely from mm-hmm. Demi Moore, and that it made more money than than Pretty Woman, that it was that big of a blockbuster, and that people still yeah. watch it today. Just love that movie. Yeah. People just that's something. I'm sure a lot of people that's their favorite movie probably of all time. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> I'm sure it is. You know that there are other people. Or it was before Titanic came along. (laughs) Then twice. Exactly. (laughs) All right. You know, um, Shirley MacLaine was in Postcards from the Edge, uh, which is another fantastic movie. And she decided that she probably didn't stand a chance for Bathurst. So she decided to 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 campaign for supporting, but she underestimated how strong the supporting category was going to be that year people say that if she had actually gone for it and, and pushed to go for lead actress and postcard from the edge she may have stood a good stand, stood a good chance of winning well she deserved it over meryl streep i thought they were both really I, good yeah but. i think so. i mean i just i love that movie so much i've I seen that movie too. so many times <laughs> i love it love it with a passion but they're both great <laughs> there's that scene on the stairway where she's Talking about the time that she, her dress flew it up. Twirled up. <laughs> she wasn't wearing any. It twirled up. It twirled up. And you weren't wearing no, any underwear. Wearing no underwear underneath. She goes, wow, it was the 60s. You are jealous because I can drink and you can't take drugs any longer because I can handle it and you can't. Handle? How do you handle it? My drinking does not interfere with my work. I wish that my mother had been as concerned about me when I was a little girl. Will you please tell me what is this awful thing I did to you when you were a child? I want to know. I want to know. Okay, fine. From the time I was nine years old, you gave me sleeping pills. That was over-the-counter medication, and I gave it to you because you you couldn't sleep. Sleeping pills. They were not sleeping pills. It was store-bought, and it was perfectly safe. And don't blame me. For your drug taking, I do not blame my mother for my misfortunes or for my drinking. Well, you don't even acknowledge that you drink. How could you possibly blame your mother for something you don't even do? Remember my 17th birthday party when you lifted your skirt up in front of all those I people, did not lift my skirt. Michael. It twirled up! You only remember the bad stuff, don't you? What about the big band that I got to play at that party? Do you remember that? No! You only remember that my skirt accidentally twirled up! And you weren't wearing any underwear. Well. <laughs> so funny. But um, what about Godfather 3? What's what's our final assessment of that movie? I've only seen it once. I've never gone you back. You know, I like, if it wasn't if it didn't have to try to be better than the first two, it would be a fantastic movie on its own, but it had so much so much to over it had, it had the expectations behind it were so great that I think that that um it has a bad reputation, but I really respect it. I have I like it. 
I just never liked it, how it, it turned. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Craig. It cheapens the first two a little bit. It seems a little unnecessary, um, mm-hmm. and it and it just because it, it because it's a lesser film than those. It just kind of I don't know. It, it it's hard to watch it. It's it's not. But like Ryan said, on its own, it's not a bad film. Um, and actually, the last time that I watched it, which was. Uh, when we did when we did the first Godfather, actually, I watched all three of them together, and um, mm. even Sofia Coppola isn't as horrible the last the, the, the last time that I watched it as she was at the time. I actually I feel bad for her that she was that she was put in that situation. She she shouldn't have she shouldn't have been forced into the film like that. Yeah, um, and, and she's definitely a liability, but she doesn't ruin the film for me the way she used to. You know, I'm a fan of the first two. I I love that. I think they they are two of the greatest gangster films ever made. Absolutely. This film, in my opinion, I think was not it was it was not necessary to make. I just think they just should have left it alone. One and two, it stand. Three does not even stand next to those two films. It, it just doesn't. When you mention the Godfather, everyone mentions Godfather two first, and then they mention the Godfather, and then the Godfather Part Three is like a long lost brother. It, it just mm-hmm. misses the mark from the first two films. Just oh yeah, and absolutely, it doesn't stand. It doesn't stand on the same plateau as, as the first two not by any means. I'm just saying that I, as, as I can enjoy it as one of probably one of my forty favorite gang, um, gangster films. You know, it's not it's not in my top five, but it's in my top forty. And you know, now when they show um, during the, I think it was during the '80s or during the early '90s, they when they started to show The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. They blended the two films together, so they was like going back and forth. And I think they did the same thing now with the there's a package of the Godfather, Godfather Two, and Godfather Three as one big package movie, where they just blended the whole thing together. So and everything in like, chronological order, right? Right. So, re- so there's no yeah. separate movie. I think mm-hmm. there's that, and then you can get to the separate movies as well. And it works yeah. with the Godfather and the Godfather Two, but it just doesn't work when they blend in the Godfather Three. Yeah, I can see I, I what you mean. Yeah, I don't even like the idea of blending the, the first two together because part of the great part of the greatness of the second one was switching back and forth between past and present. And when you destroy that by putting everything in chronological order, you you lose all of the contrast. Yeah, and right. he didn't need to make Michael Corleone nice. I mean, the way that he ended Godfather Two with him just sort of brutally selling his soul, and it was a perfect mirror to the Godfather One where. Vito Corleone was so much more, you know, humane and compassionate than than uh, Michael, but then he mm-hmm. just kind of shits all over that in Godfather Three. I thought so. Yeah, but so well, one thing that logically and thematically it works because he's trying to be nice, but he's really not, and he ends up paying the ultimate consequences for his past sins, and it makes sense, but it's just unnecessary. You know what? It does make sense all to me. Implied by Part Two. Hmm. Why well, it does that make sense to me? Why I was going to say the reason that it makes sense to me is because that's exactly what happened to Vito. When Vito, in his old age, he 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 had his family to look out for, and he had to suffer the fa- the tragedy of losing his his uh, his offspring. And that's right. exactly the same thing that ended up happening to Michael. So there's that 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 uh, history repeating itself aspect to it. Right. Where in your old age you sort of mellow out a little bit, and you and you just want to you know have your family close to you, and then your family is destroyed by what you've done in your past. The same thing happened to Vito. So that's why, it, it, to me, it's sort of, um, you know, there's that interplay going on. But, but I agree, it's, it's, a, it's a weaker film than the first two, a lot weaker. 
It so seems the, unnecessary. The big failures that year were Havana, remember, with um, that was supposed to be Havana starred um, Robert Redford. Robert Redford. Robert Redford Didn't and Sydney Pollack direct that. And Sydney Pollack directed it. And, and um, one thing that I loved about seeing Redford at Telluride was him talking about his long friendship with Sydney Pollack. Uh, For instance, one what he told me was that um, not me, <laughs> an audience <laughs> full of people. <laughs> he was speaking just to me. No, but um, he he said that uh, he had met Sydney Pollack when the two of them were. Um, God, where were they? They were—I want to say the military, but I'm not sure if it was the military or they were in acting school or somehow they knew each other, and they got along really well and they hung out all the time. And and when Robert Redford came to be an actor, he was working with um, a producer, and they were going to make—I guess it was his first movie or something—I can't remember what it was—but um, uh, he he suggested they they showed the star of the movie. Maybe it was Jane Fonda. I don't know. It was some big star that he was doing a movie with all the names of the directors that were on this list and Sidney Pollock's was like the last name on the list and Robert Redford asked her to pick him his friend and and he did and then they ended up doing the movie together and and then continuing to collaborate for many 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 years after that I wonder if they didn't do television together because Redford and Pollock both had their roots in 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 like the early 1960s television maybe it was that maybe that's how they met I don't know but all I know is that that was great that they were such friends so to see them now collaborating on Havana, which flopped so badly, and it was meant to be like the next Casablanca, and um, did not do well. Uh, was, mm. But you know, I mean, I guess you could say it's bad. It's pretty bad. It's sort of like that other Redford movie with Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, but uh, the other big failure, of course, Dick Tracy, which was expected and predicted to sweep the Oscars when it came through, and it had you know Madonna as as um, that character i can't remember her name and you know that was when madonna and warren Beatty's relationship was raging and it kind of overshadowed the film but what he was doing is what he always does as a filmmaker which which was interesting you know he was trying to make this kind of beautiful comic book movie um mm-hmm. much better and, ma- and match be. match it visually to the way the comic book looks look comic books looked with the primary colors only sticking to just the four or five seven different basic primary colors right yeah so interesting, you know. Warren Beatty goes big or he goes home. You know, he doesn't yeah, ever settle. He he does. We, these, he has these big giant failures in his life and big giant successes. You know. We overlooked mentioning the fact that Kevin Costner was was one of the uh, was the, only the fifth time that any individual had been nominated for best director, um, best actor, and best what best play. The, the, you know, all, uh, are, are been nominated in three different categories. Orson Welles had done it, um, and Warren Beatty did it twice for Heaven Can Wait and for Reds. Lawrence well, Olivier did it too, I believe. Lawrence Olivier for Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah. That, uh, yeah. I knew that there were three or four or five others before Kevin Costner did it. So, um, tr- um, Warren Beatty only directed five movies in his entire career Heaven Can Wait, Reds, Dick Tracy, and Bullworth. And they say Dick Tracy's special on TV in 2010. I have no idea what that is. So, really, he only directed four movies. And his last two were kind of bombs. I guess that's why he doesn't direct anymore. Um, Dick Tracy and Bullworth, even though they're they've been rediscovered and appreciated now, both those movies. Mm-hmm. And you know well, what? 
You know what? There's been this news this week that I hope is not true, and I think it's been disproved. I think people have come out and said that it's a lie. But Radar on Radar Online came up with the story that Jack Nicholson was retiring from acting, that he really that he had trouble memorizing his lines, and he was he was just wanted to bow out gracefully instead of uh, instead of um, trying to struggle with his lines and everything. But the only project that's listed on Jack Nicholson's uh, IMDb, IMDb page is an untitled Warren Beatty project. In the future, I'm talking about that Warren Beatty has a project in the future that he isn't considering uh, Jack Nicholson being in. Wow. Well, it's, it's certainly not on his IMDb. It's not on Beatty's. Oh, it's not in, not in Beatty's. It's uh-huh. on Nicholson's page. I haven't checked Beatty's page. When was the yeah. last time he did a movie, Jack Nicholson? I mean, uh, 2010, that comedy, How Do You Know? And before that, The Bucket List in 2007. So he's okay. really, um, it's a steep. Um, Decline. It seems like to yeah. me. Well, does he really have to act anymore? I mean, he's he's pretty much accomplished with few actors. Well, really, act. absolutely. He, if anybody should retire, even if he just wanted to retire, just because he's sick of everything, you know, and just enjoy life now for the rest of his life, that'd yeah. be fine with me. But I, I, I would I would hate to think that he's having um, you know like pre dementia problems or something like that. That would be really really sad. Yeah, I just thought of who Michael sounds like on that microphone. <laughs> What? Because Michael, we just watched it the other day, Alien. You know when um, oh. when Ash is knocked over and he talks. <laughs> his, his voice box is broken. That's <laughs> what Michael said. It does. You're right. Speaking of um, speaking with Warren Beatty, you said he got five Best Director nominations. Remember? No, Kevin? no. He directed no. four. He directed okay. four feature films only. Only four. Um, Heaven can wait. He had a co-director, Buck Henry. Right, right. So he really only technically yeah. directed three movies in his whole life. Yeah. He had a hand in a lot of the movies that he was in, though, from as far back as, at least as far back as Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. We talked yeah. about how he practically directed Shampoo and it frustrated um, the director of Shampoo. Who was Hal Ashby, right? Hal, 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 Ashby. Hal, Hal Ashby, right. Yeah, Hal, Hal Ashby got really frustrated because uh, Warren Beatty was so bossy. Yeah, he's sort of a notorious pain in the ass. Well, a lot of people thought that that character, that character that played by Dennis Quaid, was based on Warren Beatty. And it's funny that Annette Bening plays one of the one of his fuck buddies. You know, right? Yeah. And he exactly. says all the exact same things. See, the see. Anything all that Warren Beatty dated in his entire career, he ends up with Annette Bening. I mean, he has some of the most beautiful. I'm not saying she's not beautiful, but he has some of the most beautiful women in in the film industry that he dated, and he ends up with. What's wrong with her? I love her so much. Did you see her? Michael, watch The Grifters. If you want to see, like, the hottest piece of ass in town. I love Annette Bening. She is a great, she's a great actress. I I love a lot of her films, but I'm just saying, he did with some incredibly great actresses, and he ends up with Annette Bening. I just find it interesting. Well, remember, (laughs) Ash... (laughs) <laughs> I'm just gonna start calling you Ash. No. You can just picture Michael with like this white fluid bubbling out of his ears and mouth right now. Um, 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 remember Woody Allen's famous line: "I want to be reincarnated as Warren Beatty's fingertips." I mean, he's you know Julia. I mean, not uh, you know, Julia Christie and Diane Keaton and you know Natalie Wood. I mean, the most beautiful woman ever. But I can see why he picked Annette Bening. You know, there's this story going around that. Um, in the phone sex world that 
uh, his kink, Warren Beatty's kink, was that he liked girls who talked like this. You know, he liked that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's Annette Benning in The Grifters. Absolutely. She's not really like right. that. You know, it but, sure is Goldie Hawn. And maybe that's what, that's, that, that's, that explains the Goldie Hawn thing, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But, I, you know, one look at Annette Benning, you could see him going for her because she's so, oh, yeah. you know, she's sure. hot for one thing, but she's also so, like, actressy and smart. And, you know, plus, but what was he? He was old by then. Yeah, but since she married, she doesn't do as many films as she should. You know, it's like she—I mean, she devoted her most of her career now to being a mother and a wife, but she does film every now and then now. She does. Yeah, he definitely derailed her career for sure. Yeah, exactly. And maybe he wanted it that way. He—I guess he didn't want a, a wife working in film doing the same thing. He wanted a wife maybe stay home and on, on an occasion she can do a movie. That's yeah. part of the wife that he wanted. Well, she's also was a devoted mother. She raised four kids, you know, and that was couldn't have been easy. So, and she wanted to be there for them. So she took a she took a back seat, and then she tried to come back. Look, I mean, now she's made she made the kids are all right. One of her greatest performances ever. She's just a fantastic actress. I have, mm-hmm. I love the woman. She chose well, being a mom for a while over competing with Meryl Streep over the three good female perform- female roles that came out every year. <laughs> right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think she made the right choice. Yeah. And you know, next and next, we'll talk about next next week about Bugsy. Fantastic a role for both of them. Really, their last great movie together. I think. Yeah, that was the movie that they um, that they met on, that they got together mm-hmm. on was Bugsy. Yeah. She's so great in Bugsy. Oh, mm-hmm. I can't wait to Amazing. get to the Bugsy part. Um, but then they she made that awful. Should have been nominated too. What? She should have been nominated. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that movie, well, no, that was up against Silence of the Lambs. It was never going to win. Um, the love affair was terrible. <laughs> Sorry, but it was. That movie they made together was just terrible. I would love to see them do a movie now with both of them, like with, you know, old age faces, wrinkles. Right. No well, love or... Affair was that remake of the old whatever it was. That old, yeah, um... An Affair to Remember. An Affair to Remember, That's right, bad. yeah. It was so, so bad. Uh, not that... Mm. Well, love, Although well, Catherine Hepburn is great in that. Yeah. She's always great, though. <laughs> Wait, Ash, did you have something to say? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, An Affair to Remember is also a remake of the, of the original love, story, mm. love Affair, the original version. Okay, right, yeah. So they swap titles back and forth over right, the years right. with, but with every the remake. The 180 version was a pretty awful version. No, pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah mistake all the it way was... around. And that's probably, you know, that, that explains why his, he stopped directing movies, is because for some one reason or another, from Ishtar to Love Affair to Bullworth, his movies started failing, and he probably just found it hard to get financing. Yeah, and, you know, uh, it's so true. I, I hate that about Hollywood, that that's the, that that's the way things yeah. have turned out. Well, I think with Warren Beatty, remember he did a film called Town and Country. He caught it. Oh, that was awful. Like, yeah, it cost like forty million dollars to make, and it was such yeah. a bomb. And then ever right. since then, he just hasn't had a hit since. And he was gonna, wasn't he gonna play in one of Tarantino's movies? Um, yeah, he was. He was talked about for Kill Bill. For Kill Bill, right? Mm-hmm. Right. right yeah. He didn't do it. 
I'm looking at his IMD page now, and I do see that there's an untitled Warren Beatty project, but it doesn't have a date on it. It doesn't even have a year. It's like way in the future. So far in the future, they don't even know the date. They don't even know the year. And that's the one I'm thinking about. Where, you know, <laughs> it's like, the it's like in the next the life, year. in the next galaxy or something. Every now and then, but, Variety has a wet dream where they mention some distant project by talented people, and IMDb picks up on it, goes in their database, and it just stays there, and nothing ever happens yeah, with it. So that's I'll be probably very cautious what, about what it is. Yeah. Right. He's another one that doesn't have to act or make a film anymore. He, he's no. Well, he really, who does? After you make one movie and you make $5 million for one movie, you know, what would be stopping you from just, like, doing nothing else for the rest of your life? Because you're, you've got it made, right? Right. And look, he That's, made he made the next year, next year that we're going to be talking about this, he makes Bugsy, which I think is one of his best performances ever, really. He's mm-hmm. great as Bugsy Siegel, you know, in that crawl scene. That's so good. I love this movie. I'm a huge, as we all are, a huge Warren, Warren Beatty fan. But after that, it's Love Affair, then it's Bullworth, then it's Town and Country, and then it's that, um, you know, as an actor, I'm saying. And then Dick Tracy uh-huh. special, whatever that was. And yeah. then that's it, you know. So things went down fast, and and now he's pretty much given up. I think people have a a, a creative prime, and it and it kind of dovetails with their with their sexual prime. They once you get past a certain point, you've kind of sort of been there and done that, and and you don't have the same drive to excel anymore. You become kind of complacent and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, testosterone, you're talking, yeah. Um, the dire- director has testosterone theory. Yeah. Do you think yes, that's true think about every that, really. every artist? Do you think that's true about every filmmaker? I think Not some every. people last longer than others, but I think a lot of people, after a while, I think that the drive is just not as strong. And I think some people who who have relied on something other than testosterone early in their career uh, are able to maintain careers longer, like maybe Scorsese, for instance. Yeah. You don't think of his, I don't consider his films to be like testosterone driven, really, the way that, that I do some other hot, you know, uh, you know, directors who are hot for five, four or five years when they're in their prime. They just seem to lose that willingness to be daring, that want, that need and that drive to, to be challenging. And I've talked to some directors like David Fincher or whatever who say that it's such a pain in the ass to make a movie. You have to fight so many people over so many things that at at some point it just doesn't become worth it anymore to do. And I bet Soderbergh that's, is saying the same thing. Right. Exactly. Soderbergh is saying the same thing. If, unless you're like the Coens and you just are, or Woody Allen is a really good example of someone who's. I mean, ja- Blue Jasmine is like to me it's prime Woody Allen. It's some of his best work he's ever done in his whole career, mm-hmm. and he's in his seventies, you know. But he and and the Coens they have this insular protection you know they don't have to fight studios on things because their movies are always you know on time and they always make a profit they don't lose money so they can work Mm -hmm. on their own so maybe it's not as you know like someone like warren Beatty would have to sell an idea to a studio and he he needs the fight to do that he needs the fight to be able to see his vision through and maybe they just Mm -hmm. don't have it when they get older well the cone brothers and they're not like hollywood based you know they didn't come out of the hollywood system like warren Beatty came out of the Hollywood system, but that's what right. he's used to. You know, um, what, the Cohen brothers, they're not part of the Hollywood system. They 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 started making these small little in, independent films, and that's where they got their start. So that's why they are the way they are compared to uh, um, Warren Beatty. Right. You know, and people like, mm-hmm. like him. One uh, side note, footnote to 1990, 1990, 
Andrew Dice Clay won the Razzie Award for best for worst actor of the year for that. What was the name of that thing? Ford Fairlane. I remember. Yeah, Ford Fairlane. Adventures of Ford, Ford Fairlane. And here he is again in, in 2013. The a great comeback in Blue Jasmine. You've been listening to episode 43, part two of Oscar Podcast.